Welcome to Revival from the Bible, a daily devotional podcast where we dig into God's Word together and find life through Jesus Christ. My name is Ben Blakey. It's Wednesday, the 26th of August, 2020. Well, who's ready to be encouraged today? Who is, you know, it's Wednesday, it's the middle of the week. Who just needs a, you know, a boost of encouragement from your soul, from the inside out? Well, I know I do. And we're going to find one of the most amazing and encouraging passages in all of Scripture today in Revival from the Bible. And I am talking about Psalm 103. And here we're going to start three days in this psalm. And a very familiar psalm, especially these first few verses. But I want us to think really carefully about these verses. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, or even if you've been coming uh, to Compass Bible Church, Treasure Valley, and hearing the sermons there, you probably notice certain themes that come up over and over again. And it's my prayer that if I, as a pastor, am doing this right, some of those themes that you start hearing over and over again wouldn't be, you know, personal favorite things of mine or, or different things like that, but that they would truly be themes that we see over and over again in the scriptures. And that's really what I think we're going to see today, because if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, one thing we'll talk about often is the danger of forgetfulness and how bad it can be for us spiritually when we forget what God has done. And I really want you to see that's not just my own personal opinion. That's something that we see over and over again in scriptures. On the one hand, a warning about the danger of forgetting, and on the other hand, an encouragement that we must always remember. And that's really what we're going to see in this, in this passage today as we just look at the first five verses of Psalm 103. We're going to see him urging his soul not to forget, but to remember. And let me just read these amazing verses for us in Psalm 103. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So there, he's calling himself to worship, right? Sometimes we think about church and the service starts and the worship leader calls everyone to worship. Well, in this case, David's the worship leader and the congregation is his soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And then he gives that warning in verse two, forget not all his benefits. And then what does he do in verses three through five? He starts remembering the benefits. He starts listing them off. So that's really one thing I want to encourage you to do today is to count your blessings. And I mean, we say that it sounds trite, it sounds trivial, but do it like David does here to really sit down and itemize some of the ways that God has been good to you. And even I would encourage you use what David does here as a template for yourself. Go through each one of these things and think about it for yourself. Who forgives all your iniquity? Do you have sin in your past? Well, great, I do too. And here's the good news of the gospel. 
all of our sin is nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. It is forgiven, not just because it's overlooked, but because it's paid for. Can you think about that for a while today? He says, who heals all your diseases. Have you ever been sick before? Have you ever gotten better? Well, how'd you get better? Medicine, physical therapy, surgery. Well, you got better because God, that's why you got better. And he heals all our diseases. Sure, he works through medicine, physical therapy, surgery. Thank God for the the advances of modern medicine and all the technology we have available to us. But if for an instant we start giving credit to all those things, instead of giving credit to God, well, we've forgotten and we're walking down a dangerous road. Who redeems your life from the pit? Oh, this might be my... My favorite phrase, although I'm looking at the next one saying they're pretty good too. So, but he redeems our life from the pit. And I think this isn't just necessarily talking about hell and forgiveness in that sense, but we see sin can be very, very destructive right here, right now in this life. And sometimes this verse makes me think, man, where would I be if God hadn't saved me? And you know what kind of sounds like an accurate description of where I would be? the pit. And if you think, you know, 2020 is the pits, right? Well, guess what? It's it's nothing compared to what your life would be if you didn't have God in your heart through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit living in you. I mean, we we need to be clear. I would rather have the world be in chaos all around me than for me to be lost in my sin and the world to be just going fine. That would be such a destructive thing. Psalm 40 speaks of how, you know, we were drawn up out of the miry clay, out of the pit, and our feet were set on a rock. We used to be the foolish man whose house was built on a sand. Now our house is built on the rock. He's redeemed our life from the pit. And he crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. This is talking about God's disposition toward us. So this isn't even necessarily talking about things that he's done, but just his attitude toward us. His attitude toward us is full of steadfast love and mercy. And then that leads to the next part there, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Has God ever satisfied you with good? Even this year, are there ways that God has still been faithful to provide for you? We need to think through all of these things. And I would encourage you to take some time to do that today, to itemize your blessings, to count your blessings, and to use these categories as a template, to think about the sin in your life that has been forgiven, to think about the the physical diseases that God, or pains that God has healed in your life, to think about where you would be if Christ hadn't gotten a hold of your life and praise God that he has redeemed you from that, and to think about how all of your life as a Christian, his attitude toward you has been steadfast love and mercy, and he has satisfied you with the good. And this all sounds like a rosy picture. And you might say, hey, there's been some tough things. Well, remember who wrote this psalm? David. He didn't exactly have a life without any trouble. His life wasn't all, you know, green pastures and quiet streams. There were some serious trials in the life of David. And there might be some serious trials in your life too. But David knew the remedy for that was thinking about the goodness of God and forgetting not all the ways that God had been good 
to him. And I hope that encourages you today, even if you're in the midst of suffering. And that, of course, brings us back to the book of Job. And quite a section from the book of Job today, uh, chapters 25 all the way through 30. 25 through 30. And here's a long stretch. We see the last speech of one of his friends in chapter 25, Bildad. And then we're going to see the fourth friend speak up tomorrow. But of the three friends, this is the last one, Bildad. And he's basically saying, how can a man be right in the eyes of God? And then starting in chapter 26, we're going to get six chapters in a row of Job speaking, kind of making his final appeal to his three friends. And he starts off in chapter 26 just by really talking about how awesome God is and that his his understanding is higher than ours. I love some of the phrases here. Verse seven, he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. And then he even talks about some of the natural wonders of of creation and all of this. And in verse 14, he says, behold, these are but the outskirts or these are the fringes of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? Just talking about how great God is and Job doesn't lose that perspective. But then in chapter 27, Job really makes the case again. No, he's holding on to his integrity. He's He's not admitting to some grave secret sin in his life. And he does trust that even though God doesn't always judge the wicked immediately, that he will do that in his time. And in chapter 28, he kind of says, hey, how do we figure this all out? God knows wisdom, but we don't totally get it. And he ends in a great spot in chapter 28 by saying, behold, the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. That sounds like Proverbs. And to turn away from evil is understanding. That's a great perspective. There's so many questions in the world that it's like, man, I don't know. I don't know why some of these things happen. But what I do know what wisdom is, is the fear of the Lord and turning away from evil. That is a great statement. And then in chapter 29 and and 30, Job kind of gets reflective. And in chapter 29, he kind of reflects on when his life was good, when things were going well. And in chapter 30, he starts recounting his sorrows and saying things like, well, now my soul is poured out within me and his life is rough. And tomorrow in chapter 31, Job uh, will wrap up his speech and it'll kind of be the last time we hear from Job in this format uh, until the very end of the book when he's just responding to God. And those are, those are very short. So Job is kind of wrapping up his statements here in chapters 26 through 30. Well, let's go to the New Testament now and to the gospel of Luke, where in chapter 14, we're going to read verses 30, 25, excuse me, through 35. And as we do that, we see Jesus say some pretty strong things saying, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoa, I'm supposed to hate my father and mother and and my wife? Doesn't the Bible say love my wife like Christ loves the church? Well, I think the simplest way to understand it here is, you know, Jesus sometimes used figures of speech like hyperbole, where he's making a very strong statement that is not intended to be taken entirely literally. But he is trying to make a strong statement that the love that we have for Christ should be far above all other loves, even important loves. I mean, there's no love more important in this world, even from God's perspective, than the love we have for family. For we, We should honor our father and mother. We should love our spouses. 
But Jesus is making clear the loyalty has to be, to me, way above and beyond all of these other things. And he puts it strongly there in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And that's really the idea. If you want to follow Christ, that means I'm letting go of everything else. Everything belongs to him. And that's an important thing that I think so many people don't understand about what it really means to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus means we're giving up control. It's not about me. It's not about my desires anymore. It is all about him. That's part of our mission as a church and as believers to declare this message and to help people understand what it really means to follow Jesus, to help people count the cost, to know that it's not just raising your hand or praying a prayer once in your life. It means, no, I'm giving it all up to follow Jesus. He is now the most important thing, but we know he's also worthy. Jesus is worthy of all of this. There is nothing better than him. He's worth renouncing all that we have for to follow him. And I want to wrap up today in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we see some interesting things here. I mean, we see him talking about order in the church. And he says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And this verse would be one why I would hold to a position that when you look at the pastors or the elders uh, in the church, which we'll talk more about in 1 Timothy 3, is he lists the qualifications for them, but that should be a group of of men leading the church. And when you go to church on Sunday and the the pastor stands up front to preach the word of God, that, that should be a man. Now, why do I believe that? Well, Really, it doesn't come down to my opinion. I don't get to choose what's best. I'm leaning on God and trying to follow what what he said. So then the question, and I think it's a valid question to ask, is what this verse 12 saying, is that something that was spoken to this culture in the time of Paul and Timothy? Or is that something that God meant to be a pattern for all Christians to follow throughout all of time? What, what, What is it? And I think the next verse gives us a great answer. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So it ties this instruction on really the order of the church all the way back to creation. Even something that happened before the fall, that Adam was formed first, then Eve. So This whole ordering, I don't think it's cultural. I don't think it's a result of the fall. I think it's been God's pattern all the way from the beginning. And we have to acknowledge God's the designer. God's in control. Let's let him make the decisions and let's trust him and follow him. And that's why I hold the position that I do. And I don't think it's based on culture. I think it's based on creation and God's design. Then there's an interesting phrase there in verse 15 where it says, yet she, talking about woman, shall be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now that is a very interesting statement. Is this saying that women get saved through having kids? Well, no, I don't think it means that. For one thing, when the word salvation is used, it's not always talking about spiritual eternal salvation. It's used in other senses. And I also don't think that could possibly be true because what about single women or what about women that are married that can't for one reason or another have kids? Does that mean they're not saved? No, that's absurd. 
What is it saying? Well, I think basically, and this is something that's probably unfortunately controversial in our world today, is women have children. That's not something men can do. And he just talked about how the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, that she kind of, you know, in a way led the way into the fall. And now he's just highlighting, I think, the simplest way to understand it is, well, now women can have a great privilege in kind of reversing the effects of the fall as they have children and train them in faith and love and holiness. And what an incredible opportunity that is. And I think simply that's what it's saying. But as we wrap up today, I want us to remind ourselves of the beginning of 1 Timothy 2, where he calls to pray for kings and all who are in high position so that Christians may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And as I sign off today, I want to encourage you in the midst of all that's going on around us with 2020, in the midst of a presidential election year, let's stop today and take time to pray for our political leaders. This is something that God would want us to do. And I think it's something that we need to do more of in our society. When there's so much noise going on around us, one of the greatest noises that should be coming from the church of Jesus Christ is prayer for kings and all who are in positions of authority in our culture. Thanks for digging into God's word with me today on Revival from the Bible. For more resources, check out revivalfromthebible.com. To learn more about Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley, go to compassbible.tv. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.